Uh, welcome to Mercy Fellowship, uh, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And uh, on your way in, you should have gotten a copy uh, of our discipleship guide for our series. It's going to take us through uh, and past Easter called The Story of Everything, uh, where we are trying to look at uh, the great narrative of the Bible, God's story, all about Jesus and how it impacts, changes, transforms us individually, uh, collectively, and ultimately for the world. And so uh, last week, we kind of began in the middle in Luke 24 and kind of saw how all of this story is about Jesus. This is the resurrected Jesus walked with some um, disciples uh, to the road to Emmaus and just said, hey, you guys are reading the Bible wrong if you don't see that every part of it is all about Jesus. And so today, uh, we're actually going to be in the beginning. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 today. But as you turn there, shouldn't take you too long. It's the first page. Uh, even on the app, I think you can just swipe to the first little thing there. Um, I want you to ask yourself, who is the author of your story? Like, like, like in your mind, who's the author? Who's the narrator? What's the voice that shapes your identity and helps you understand who you are? Right? Maybe, maybe it's a, a story that your parents wrote for you, or maybe it's a story that you believe societally because uh, of your socioeconomic status or your race or your gender, and you believe some story uh, about yourself. As Christians, we believe that there isn't a bunch of different stories, but there's one story. And that God is the author of all stories. And so what happens is we decide to start writing stories and narratives in our own head where we're the center of it, where we're either uh, the, the victim because somebody else has done us wrong, so then they're the villain, or we're the hero because we've brought salvation to, to someone or, or, or we saved ourselves. And the challenge we have about ourselves being the author of our own stories is we are flawed characters characters. Every single one of us brings a casserole of sin to the table of the potluck of life, right? And so because we're flawed characters, we write bad stories. We write stories, again, like I said, where we're the hero, or we write stories that are too small because they start and end with us. Most of us functionally believe that history began the day we were born. And that from that time on, the rest of the world revolves around us. And that means every person better bend to my will or, 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 or better uh, have a part in my story. And so if we're going to be grounded, if we're going to have a sense of peace and settleness, then we need to look to an author who's not flawed, so without sin, without brokenness, without being twisted, and, and we need to look to an author who can write a story big enough to help us understand your story, my story, our story, but also all the other little stories that are happening in the world. And so that brings us to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at the main character and the author of the story of everything. You have your Bibles. Hope you do. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read and then we'll talk about it. In the beginning, God. Okay, we're going to stop. We're stopping right here. This is how it starts. In the beginning, God. The story that we as Christians believe in, the way that we look at the world, is not once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away or in Middle Earth or I don't know, you know, wherever else, right? No, no, because those are legends. 
Those are myths. Those are fables. We believe that these story like is true. In fact, actually, everything you read past that in the beginning, God, if it's not true, doesn't matter. And so even sometimes in, in I'll, I'll air quote, Christian circles, we, they try to do weird things like say, well, I don't really think it really matters until chapter 12 of Genesis, or I don't think it really gets going until we meet Jesus in the New Testament. Every, like, no, this is the beginning. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God, uh, the story is all about him. And so the only other option, when you think about the universe, when you think about yourself, when you think about the world, when you think about humanity, the only other option besides in the beginning God is, and this is a real popular one right now for some reason, in the beginning, nothing. Nothing. Just in the beginning, nothing. And then at some point, something. Okay, what, what changed? How does that work? Like, I, I actually was listening to a podcast this week from some guys who were just kind of philosophizing, and they were talking about the origins of the world, and they said, yeah, some people believe that, like, there was just so much nothing at the beginning that it just got so, comp- all the nothingness compressed and then became something. Okay, you think we're crazy because we believe a guy rose from the dead? I think it's crazy to think a whole bunch of nothing made everything. And so the Bible begins with, in the beginning, God. That, that before I enter the story, before you enter the story, before anything else enters the story, before anything or anyone else, there is God who is eternal. He has no beginning. In fact, God began all other beginnings. There's no stories without him. There's, and so we need to understand this main character who also happens to be the author of the story. We've got to understand who he is in a way that makes sense to us. Otherwise, as you begin to read the rest of the story, you're going to get the story wrong if you get the main character and the author's motives wrong. And so there's a lot of things we could talk about when it comes to attributes of God and, and who he is and how we think about God. And, 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 and even just from the Bible, we could do like a months, months long series on that. But the reality is most of the attributes of God can be distilled down into three pretty important characters, characteristics rather that I'll walk through here real quickly just to help us understand the character and nature of the author and the main character of the story. Number one, God is powerful. God is powerful. Another way of saying that, God is sovereign. That that there's not one thing that happens in the universe that is outside of God's control or ability to influence. He is in absolute control, which means that there's there's no one or no group of people or no force that's somehow stronger than God that can overpower God. And, And what that means is there's no one you can appeal to above God, right? You can't be frustrated with God and say, I want to talk to your manager, right? You can't, you can't say, oh man, I'm really frustrated. Like, I'm going to pray to, there's somebody bigger and greater than God. No, no, he is the most powerful. And so in the story of everything, the main character, God, is a king. He rules over everything. And it means that all of creation, the entirety of the universe, is under the rule and reign of God's kingdom. No other king or kingdom is greater. And so as, as our 
year goes on and we start to get really, really wound up and spun up about things going on in the world and, and electing a, a new or different president. I say new or different, it's the same two guys for the last eight years, um, right? No, no, there's a king over everything. That's the biggest story that we should be consumed with. And so he's big, he's powerful. Um, it means no other stories, no other gods, no other people you can appeal to or influence besides God. It means nobody else has the power to transform your heart, your soul, your circumstances other than that God. And so it also means this, that there's nothing random or accidental in the perspective of God. Like we used to say this all the time when I was in college. That's so random. No, nothing's random. Like, like everything is intentional in order. And so the, the, I'm going to give us a characteristic and I'll give you an implication. So characteristic, God is powerful. Implication is this. Because God is all powerful, we can trust he is able to do all things necessary to accomplish his purposes. I'll say that one more time. Because God is all powerful, we can trust he is able to do all things necessary to accomplish his purposes. Um, this is all over the Bible, but one scripture in particular, Psalm 135, 5 and 6. For I know that the Lord is great. That's powerful, mighty, right? The Lord is uh, above all gods, little g, gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. God's in charge. That's it. All right? Number two, God is wise. God is wise. God is, we'd say, all-knowing. And so not only does God know everything, God has the perfect perspective on everything. You and I have warped sin goggles all the time. We are always seeing things from our perspective. We're seeing things through lenses that distort what is actually true. And so our perspective needs to be shaped by what God says and declares is, is good, right, and just. And so he has the perfect perspective. What that also means is God's not just all-knowing for now and in the past. God is all-knowing for eternity. So at no point is God like, whoa, shoot. I had no idea they were going to do that. I'm going to have to totally readjust everything because the AI goggles came out for Apple. Now what am I going to do, right? I don't know what to do now. No, God's never surprised. Like, he's in absolute control. He's never confused or perplexed. He may be frustrated. He may be annoyed. That's possible, but he's never surprised. He's never shocked. What that means is that God is wholly competent to be God. You and I as as parents or spouses uh, or in our jobs, like I mean, me as a, in my role as a pastor, I feel incompetent all the time. God's never felt incompetent because God is perfectly knowing and wise to fulfill the role, the office of God of the universe. He can see the big picture. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make bad judgments. He can know every individual little story and all of the big stories. He can hold them all together at once. And he knows all outcomes of all actions. So big idea, God is wise. Big implication is this. Because God is wise, we can trust he knows what to do in all circumstances. Because God is wise, we can trust he knows what to do in all circumstances. Isaiah 40, 28. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God. Okay, he's eternal. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. Last phrase. 
His understanding is unsearchable. Meaning, if, I just want to know what God knows. I want to know why God sees things that way. You are dumping yourself in an unsearchable forest that you'll never find your way out of. God knows exponentially more than we do. And I'll just be honest, that should give us all a little bit of exhale. That when we have like scrolling cell phones and we have more information than at any point in our lives, but yet also more anxiety than at any point in our lives, that you and I and we are not designed to know everything that's going on all the time. But God is, he can handle it. So God is powerful, God is wise, we gotta keep going. Uh, Number three, God is good. God is good. God is loving. And so he, he's always trustworthy. You can always trust God to act with perfect justice, with perfect mercy, with, with perfect grace and love. That what that means is that you and I don't define goodness. God defines goodness. And so we have to then look at our lives and our world and our society and put that against God's standard of goodness, not what we typically do is say, oh, actually, I think we know what's good. Let's see how God responds to that. And then we rate God based on our own judgments. And so God defines good. We cannot, in fact, you and I, we can't define goodness apart from God. God bases all standards that we can come up with. God is good all of the time. All the time, God is good. We know what love is from God, right? So we like to say, love is love. No, God is love. And he loves perfectly. And so it is most loving when we are in align with his good purposes. So big idea, God is good. God is loving. Big implication, because God is good and loving, we can trust God to do what's right. Come what may. Again, big opportunity to exhale. Psalm 145, 7 through 8. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. Talking about God. Sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. So God is powerful. God is wise. And God is good. Except what what we do is we start to twist the story and we begin to believe things about God and they usually uh, end up being wrong. And it usually happens when we start to take one of those key attributes of God away. So what happens when we think that God is wise and good but not powerful is we begin to believe in a God who is, well, he's, he's morally right. He desires good and loving things to happen in the story. But man, just, we're just so strong. We're so powerful as a people. Sin is too big. God really can't do anything to affect human suffering. Like God's not the one who can command the storms or the earthquakes or anything else. And so we end up with a God who's powerless, a God who's disengaged, who's handcuffed by something more powerful. And you're like, no, no, I, I believe in, in, in God, that he's big and powerful. Well, we then reserve one little part, one little part of our lives, of our souls, of our being that is just too strong for God. And we say things like, well, well God would never overpower my will. I mean, like, I'm, I'm, a, pretty, I'm a pretty stubborn person. Have you met me? I'm pretty strong, pretty stubborn. God would never, he couldn't. And so, so we, we believe in this God who, who somehow 
when you and I are being total wackadoodles and blockheads? Is it like, okay, just gonna heart surgery, heart of stone, heart of flesh, boom, beating for the Lord. Right? We believe that about God. Like, like my story in my life is one of Chris Rich running away from God for a whole bunch of years, and God's just grabbing me by the collar and saying, not today, this way, okay? That's what God does. That's a powerful God. We believe in a God that grants us repentance, that, that, that gives us mercy and grace, that transforms and shapes us. Okay, this is going to be a four-hour sermon, and we're not going to get to kick off if I don't keep going. Okay. Number two, God is powerful and good, but not wise. This is a fun one. God's really strong. He's really good. He, he's big. He created everything. He's really powerful. And man, he's, he, is, he is good. Like, like he wants good things. But man, he, just, he makes mistakes all the time. He's blowing it. My, my goodness, like, like what was he doing with, with a manatee? Like, like why, why were he making that thing? You know, like, what even was that? He's like, oh my gosh, like, did you see that, that zebra? Like, it's supposed to like, like hide from a lion, but it's just white and black stripes in the middle of the desert? What is he thinking? We think God's an idiot. We'd be so much better, so much wiser. Oh man, let's just start screwing around with all of our genetics and hormones. Let's just do that. Let's, you know, let's, just, let's just recreate everything in our image and not in God's image. That God is good, but he's basically incompetent. He doesn't understand what he's doing. And so we, we usually are doing pretty well until at such point we read something in God's word that disagrees with the way we see the world. And then we say, oh, well, that was outdated. Or, well, it didn't really mean that. God, God should have written it a little clearer than that. Oh, we're going to get to some real clear th- things here in the next few verses. Okay. Um, we, we forget who we are. We, we think that we're pretty brilliant. We forget that Isaiah 55 says, His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher. God is wise. Okay. Lastly, and this is the rough one. God is powerful. He's strong. He can do whatever he wants. God is wise. He can accomplish anything he wants. But then we remove his goodness. And I'll just tell you guys, that is terrifying. A God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, but isn't good or loving? That's a tyrant. Like, that that should leave us trembling in our boots. That that somehow God has no grace, no mercy, no love. That that, that, that he he can know every outcome, but he's not good. Or or that he's not consistent. Meaning... That, well, because he makes mistakes or because he's not good or because he's not loving, he, he ends up being like, like we are sometimes like a little irrational. Kind of like the lights, they're not reliable, right? On and off. We did not plan that as an illustration. That is just the beauty of a 70-year-old building. Okay. And so here we are. You end up with a God who just randomly rages. And I'll just tell you, that is a bad story. That's a horrible story. That's a fearful story. God is good all the time. And so, so when we think about God's goodness, you and I can be in good moods. God is good all the time. God's goodness is not a mood. It is a state of being. Right? Our goodness is usually dependent on did we get enough sleep and, and did we get coffee on time and did anybody like, you know, get in our way. Right? Our moods are very fickle. God is consistent. So, All of this to say, 
As we're considering the rest of the story, as you're reading through the Bible, as you're trying to understand God as a savior, as a king, as as a creator of the universe, what you believe about the main character and the author of the story will determine how you view the rest of the story. That's why it's so important for us to, to get this right in these first five words of the story before we go on. Okay, you guys ready to go on? Let's go. All right, verses one through five, let's go. God creates. All right, in the beginning, God, we'll we'll keep going, created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, God called the light day and the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. And so here we learn some more about, about the God who created everything, about the author of the story, of the main character, that God has existed eternally, as Christians we say, as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see God the Father speaks the world into existence. We, we know later, we'll see in verses, that Jesus is the embodiment of God's word. So when God speaks and creates, that's Jesus. And then we see the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. All three, Father, Son, and Spirit, involved intricately in the creation of the universe. In the beginning, God, singular, then says, let us make. So um, three and one, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So you're like, whoa, this Trinity thing sounds confusing. Are we going to get it right this morning? Well, the church has been talking about it for a couple thousand years. So like we might not nail it today. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we believe God is one, three and one. Let's keep going. What we also see here is that um, they're, they're, they're there and they say, hey, like, God didn't need to create. So get this out of your head about the character, that somehow God was lonely. No, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect community group. They didn't need to invite anybody else. They're doing great. They didn't need to invite anybody else to dinner. They weren't like, oh my gosh, we're so lonely. They're not like, like a, a young married couple who after a while is like, well, we should get a dog. You know, they're like, like, no, he's just like, no, he's doing good. The only reason God created was not to fill something that he needed, but to display his goodness and glory to the universe. And so God is the creative force behind everything. He doesn't need anything from us, and so, um, but he is the creator of the universe. So now when we think about something as big and vast as the universe, we don't say things like, that are really popular today, like, like the universe is against me, or the universe made me do it, or, or I just, you know, I'm just trying to see what's going on in the universe. No, no, again, God's the most powerful. We appeal to the God who created the universe. And so what that also means is that we don't do silly things like say, well, you know, I just, I, I, I like to, to just see God in, in like a beautiful flower or, or I see God in a sunset or, or I see God in a, the face of a small newborn baby in that moment before they cry and crap their pants, right? It's that awesome moment. No, we, no, we, we don't say that like, we say, no, there was a God who created that beautiful flower. There's a God who created and painted that sunset. There's a God who created you before you were born. And so all that we pledge our allegiance to, all that we look to is, is God that creator. 
And so we don't do silly things like praise creation on its own. Like you can enjoy a mountain, you can enjoy a river, but don't thank a mountain or a river for existing. Thank the God who made the mountains and the rivers. And so, because God's all-powerful as he created and he spoke everything into existence, it means he wasn't dependent on anything outside of himself. God didn't need a bunch of raw materials that then he shaped together. Anytime you or I make anything, we are borrowing matter that was created by God. He's given to us to be creative. Each part of his creation made with wisdom and knowledge and intelligent design. So whether you think the world is a couple thousand years old and God did this in seven literal days, or you think the world's several billion years old, the big idea is that God made it. That God is the creator. That nothing exists outside of him. That he spoke it all into existence. And so, as we read in these verses about these days of creation, the first three days of creation, um, you can skim and, and see those later, he was bringing a form to what was formless. He was creating a context for the story to play out. And so in day one, he's making night and day. And so he's creating the concept of of time in the story. Day two, water and sky. He's now created a place and a context that the story can exist within. Uh, And then um, in day three, um, he makes, uh, uh, rather, sorry. Yeah, day three, he makes ground and vegetation. So he's, he's starting to, to create like, like the setting and the, and the stage for how the story is going to play out. And then those next three days, four, five, and six, he's beginning to, to fill the stage with everything that is needed for the story to play out. Day four, lights fill the sky and there's day. Day five, fish and birds, according to its kind, fill the sea and the air. Day six, animals, um, each according to their kind, and humanity. Genesis 1.31, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So after six days of how God describes it, done. Story's ready to roll. And God sits back, and it says in the seventh day, he rested. And again, before you start to get God wrong, don't think God was wiping his brow and being like, whew, that was a lot. Glad I didn't think of anything else to make because I I could not have done a seventh day there. I just need a break. No, in the seventh day, if you notice, you can read through it, each and every day has a beginning and an end, morning and an evening. The seventh day just has a beginning. That day of rest, that day of shalom, of peace, of wholeness was to set the tone for how the rest of the story is to play out uh, of what the intended state of creation is to be, is to be one where God and humanity and his creation are in perfect harmony together. That you and I get to experience eternal rest with God, not sleeping passed out, but that rested state of being that he is God and we are not. He's in charge. He provides, he protects, he is good. And he says everything is very, very good. His rest was just a refrain from creating so that we can know that what we're supposed to share is the Sabbath rest of God. All right, 
Next verses. Because at a certain point now, we, we've talked about God as the main creator, as the main character, as the author. And maybe you're like, hold up. He's been going for 20 plus minutes. What about me? Here we go. Here's about you. Here's about me. Verse 26 and 28. It says this. 26 and 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. God blessed them. Goes on to say, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is where you and I enter the chapter of the story. Here is humanity. And so we begin to learn about who we are as people, that that we get to participate in the story that God has created. That you are not an accident that you are cast in a very significant role. We are each cast in a very significant role that we recognize that we're not all powerful, we're not all wise, we're not all good, but we've been made by God. And so you and I and we, because there's a creator, we can know that we are made distinct. That means that you're not an accident, that you and I were made on purpose for a purpose. You want to know why you're here? You were made on purpose for purpose. And so God has has created you and he's made you. And there's three big ideas I want you to get about us as as humans. Number one, we're made in his image. God doesn't talk about any other aspect of his creation being made in his image. Now you can read in God's word about like God being powerful like a mighty river or majestic like the wings of an eagle. But right here, he's being incredibly specific that humanity, you and I, men and women are created to reflect the image and likeness of God. That in part, if we want to see a little bit about what God is like, we can look at humanity. We can understand our stories. Now, not in sin and brokenness. We'll get to that a little bit more next week. But, but we can understand that, oh my gosh, we were made with dignity. We were made with respect and with honor. That we're not just mammals. You're not an animal. You're a human made in God's image. In fact, he even makes a, a kind of creation order. And, and he says that we are made apart from the animals. And then he also declares to humanity, hey, you're above the animals. So when when you're like, oh, I don't feel like those chickens are getting like human rights because they're chickens. They're made for breakfast with the eggs and dinner with the rest of them, right? That that there's something intrinsic that we should know that human life is more valuable than any other type of life. So, So a grilled cow is a great meal and a grilled person's a great tragedy, okay? You're like, I'm a vegetarian, okay? That billions of blades of grass mowed down is called maintenance. And a few people mowed down is called mayhem. We've got to get this order right. 
We've got to understand that it is human life that matters above all else. Now, I'm not saying go kill all the buffalo, uh, you know, or ruin the whole environment. We'll see here in a minute that we're called to steward and care for those things. But we have to understand that humanity is unique and distinct in creation and that we reflect God's image. We have a greater value in our lives intrinsically than any other form of creation. Number two. Man, I feel like I've been teaching on this for for 10 years and it just gets weirder and weirder. Male and female. Male and female. God created us, male and female, both in the image and likeness of God, meaning both men and women are worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. But because he says I've made them male and female, he also has made them distinct. That men are not women and women are not men. And it's not some random spectrum that we get to choose where we fit alongside it. That God has made men and women both valuable and very different. There are feminine men and there are masculine women and that can be kind of a, a spectrum. But the reality is God has created men and women different. And he's also said both men and women are necessary for God's mission to the world to be fulfilled. That men are to love and respect women, and women are to love and respect men. That, that we are to exist in complementary relationship with one another. That is part of God's beautiful design. Anything else is a distortion from the intended beginning of the story. And so, Men and women is not a social construct. It is a created order in God's design. And if you want to talk more about this, you can come join us at Equip on Wednesday nights for the next three weeks, except for this one, because this is Valentine's Day. So there's the plug for that, Equip Wednesday nights, where we're talking about gender, sexuality, and things of that nature. All right, number three. He's also called us to be fruitful and multiply. It says in verse 28 that God has blessed them, and he blessed them for a purpose that the purpose of that blessing was for them to fulfill the mandate that he has given us to be productive and to prosper. That, that he's blessed us to, to procreate, to fill the earth. So while God's story begins with a man and a woman, the intention was a whole bunch of people. If you're like, oh no, the earth is overpopulated. <laughs> no, those are all people made in God's image and likeness. God loves people. Like, if you're like, oh, there's too many people in the world, well, then volunteer to leave, okay? Because, like, we're here and we're hanging out on the planet that God made, and we, and we love it, and, and this is great. And so, like, we are called to be fruitful and more multiply. That means be intentional, orderly. Like, like the story's going to have a lot more people. That God's purpose is human flourishing and stewardship. And so um, we're there to, he says, have dominion over the animals, to cultivate, to do all these different things. And so that means, like, like, we can look at the world and the beauty of its creation, and we can see when it's, when it's been undisturbed, and there's aspects of it that are beautiful, and there are aspects of it that are terrifying. Arctic tundra, deserts, raging rivers are actually all areas that are called to be cultivated for human flourishing. So to be real practical, like here in the Northwest, we've been blessed with like this mighty river, the Columbia, that divides the great state of Washington from that place down south in Oregon, um, right? Uh, and so it's this awesome river that rages through there. And, and over the last 100 plus years, like we looked at that river and said, you know what? Let's put some dams on it. And we're going to slow the flow of the river. 
so that electricity can be produced, so that the lights can work sometimes, right? Um, so, so, that, so that you could have lights at your home, so, so that um, industry could be powered, um, so we'll back up water, so in the summertime when there's no rains, we can irrigate fields all over eastern Oregon and Washington to produce all sorts of amazing crops that make bread and beer and everything else. And, and then what will we do with those rivers where the, it doesn't flow so dangerously and the water is, is calm and clear? I don't know. Let's put some campgrounds on it and some parks and some boat ramps so you can go water skiing and hang out. And like, oh my gosh, now this raging untamed river is this resource that powers our entire region to get to function. And if you're wondering, yes, my dad works in making sure the dams keep going. And so I don't know if I'm like a corporate shill for that now or whatever. But, um, you know, what we do, though, is when we see things like that, we shouldn't get frustrated and revolt. We should rejoice and praise that we are designing and shaping the world in ways that lead to human flourishing. All right, Genesis 2. Let's keep going. Back to a little bit more about us. We've got to keep it long. 7 through 9, verses 7 through 9 of chapter 2 says this. Then the Lord formed man of, of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Okay. Oh, verse 9, sorry. And out of the ground the Lord made the spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight of good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll talk more about that next week when we talk about the story of our fall. But when God spoke everything into existence, if you're not sure that you were made unique and distinct, everything else just said he spoke into existence. With humanity, it says he formed him. It was a master craftsman leveling up to make sure I'll, like, I'm going to give this so much intentionality and uniqueness as a master craftsman. God breathed life into humanity. God still breathes life into us. And so I want you to know that God doesn't just see you as valuable. God has created you valuable. He says it is very good. So I just, sometimes we get into these stories about uh, our lives or our, our past trauma or, or systemic things in the world that are getting us down. And we wonder, do I matter? Am I being affirmed? Like, like, like somebody doesn't talk to me. They're rude to me in the hallways. Like whatever, like, like the affirmation that you and I have is that we were formed by the God of the universe who made us as a master craftsman. That means you're valuable. And so I'll just be honest. I think random chance plus time plus survival of the fittest is a dumb story. Because it means you're purposeless. It means you're not the product of intentionality. It means you're the product of chaos. That's not how God made us. That's why it's important for us to understand this chapter of the story, to get it right, that you and I weren't just created to exist, but we were actually created for joy, that God, in his, in his good design, he placed us in a garden, that he makes this, this place where this intimate part of the story is going to be told. It says he planted a garden. I mean, all the vegetation sprung up, but in this place and space, this garden, verse 13, calls the Garden of Eden, meaning pleasure, that God intentionally formed the Garden of Eden for men and women to live. Let's, let's see what that looks like in verse 15, chapter 2. Keep rolling. 
Verse 15, chapter 2, says this. It says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. You're like, oh, this isn't a great story. No, did you miss the part about where God prepared this amazing garden and then placed humanity in it? And he says, look at this. You didn't make this. You didn't design this. You just exist here. You can eat from everything. But I'm going to give you a limitation so that you also have the ability for us, part of our design, to practice obedience to God. And so he places us in this garden created for our joy. And in doing so, because he's given us this mandate to go out and subdue the earth, he's saying, hey, hang out, spend some time in this garden, and then go do that to the rest of the world. Tame the wilderness. Bring water to the deserts. Like, like, like air condition, the swamps, heat, you know, the northwest, right? Like, like, like exist, flourish. Take this garden here as an example of what the rest of the world is supposed to look like. That he's given us this freedom and enjoyment to, to get to participate in his creation mandate with the rest of the world. And so man's in the garden and he gets to to name all the different animals. It's pretty fantastic. But there's one thing that isn't great. and Everybody already knows what it is. It's for man to be alone. We see that here in verse 18 to 25. Then the Lord said, it's not good that man should be alone. Duh. Okay, um, I will make a helper fit for him. And now, and sorry, that helper word, I just have to stop for a second. That's the same word that God uses to describe the Holy Spirit. So before you get all weird and like, oh, like a helper, like an assistant. No, no, like you can't do this without this other half. Okay? Now out of the ground, the Lord God has formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought it to the man to see what he'd call them. So he makes all the names, platypus and so forth, right? And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is how the story started. This sounds way better than how things are now. Okay? And so here he is, beautifully created. It's in here. And we start to intrinsically realize that God's design for humanity was not for us to be uh, Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway. Right? To just be on the island by ourselves. He's like, no, I'm putting him in the garden. He's not going to be alone. We're going to make a helper suitable for him brought from the side, so not, not uh, up ahead to, to rule over, not behind to be ruled over, but to be a partner in ruling over this creation. There's this royal wedding that literally God's plan for us to, to multiply and subdue the earth wouldn't be able to be accomplished without men and women in loving, harmonious relationship with one another. 
And then God institutes the first wedding ceremony. It says at the end of these verses that she is his wife, not some random he swiped right on, his wife. That, that even when we talk about gender and sexuality and all these different things, social constructs, no, God is the one who invented marriage. So when we consider marriage, here it is. One man, one woman. And you're like, hold up. I've read the rest of the Bible story. It gets weird. There's one husband with a bunch of wives. There's concubines. There's all these different things. Yeah, that's after sin entered the world. God's designed from the beginning, then ratified with Jesus. One man, one woman in covenant relationship with one another for the purposes of their joy in displaying God's glory and how they love one another and how that ends up leading to more and more people engaging and living in the world. And so I just got to remind ourselves who we are in the story, that we didn't invent delight and joy, God did. That we didn't invent beauty, God invented beauty. We didn't invent pleasure, God invented pleasure. We didn't invent gender and, and gender identity, God invented that. We didn't invent sexuality, God invented that. We didn't, we didn't come up with the concept of marriage, God came up with that. And we didn't invent the idea of work or purpose. God did. So anytime any of those things start to get pursued or used, gender, sexuality, work, marriage, all those different things, outside of the author's original intent, it will not lead to flourishing. It will lead to frustration. And that's where we find ourselves as a people. And we're not unique in human history. I mean, as I said, like pretty early on, like by next week, things get even darker. They're good now. God says this is very good. But as much as our lives are not aligned with the author's intent for our lives, we will face great frustration instead of flourishing. So we need to align ourselves and repent and, and, and realign ourselves back to the author's original intent for our lives. And you're like, man, that sounds so difficult. I don't know if I can, can do that. Like, hey, I want you to know you're not alone in this. That God knows that we're off from this first good chapter. He knows that you and I are broken and in need of a Savior. That, 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 that God has actually made provision even for your and my and our sin. And he's done so in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is actually here in the beginning of the story too. We said last week that, hey, all of the Bible is, 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 is about Jesus and pointing to Jesus. Where, where's Jesus in the story? I haven't, haven't seen him, and I'd love to hear what he has to say about this. Well, here we go. John chapter 1, verses 1 and through 3 says this. This is the Apostle John writing about Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word, capital W. Jesus is called the Word of God. That word logos, it's Greek. It, it, it means he's the embodiment of God's Word. So he was the Word, Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, not anything made that was made. That here's Jesus in the story. That Jesus is there at creation. That Jesus is intimately involved in creation. When, when it says there's nothing made apart from him, when God said, let there be light, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. That, that We'll see later in the story, darkness comes, that Jesus is the light that will overcome the darkness in the world. 
And you're like, okay, great. Jesus was there at the beginning. What about now? Let's go look at Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says this. Again, talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, meaning heir of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17. He is before or preeminent all things. And in him, all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the author of the story. He's there at creation, and he's holding all things together now. And so as we think about our world, as we think about our lives, we can begin to exhale and remind ourselves, I mean, we are just not great authors of our story, and we can trade in our small broken stories for being part of Jesus' great and grand story, where you are redeemed, where you are saved, where you recognize that that because Jesus is the hero in your place, that you don't have to be all-powerful. You don't have to be all-knowing. You don't have to be all-good. That Jesus takes all of your weakness. Jesus takes all of our idiocy. Jesus takes all of our sin and evil, and he bears it on the cross in our place. And then he gives you and I a gift And that gift is his righteousness, his goodness, his right standing before God so that we can now enjoy relationship with God, relationship with one another, relationship with ourselves. And then we get to look to an eternity where we get to return to that perfect communion with God that humanity once enjoyed at the beginning of the garden. But our only hope for that is when we trade in our lame stories of ourselves, and we accept and respond to the greater joy, the greater story that happens when we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.